A reading from Psalm 85. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Um, As Josh mentioned, uh, he is my brother. It's the first time I've ever been introduced by my brother. Uh, The one thing people often point out that we share is they say that our voices sound exactly alike. So if you're feeling an overwhelming urge to mention that to the person next to you, I just wanted to give you a moment to do it right now, uh, just as we're beginning. I also just want to say thank you um, very much to this congregation before we actually get into this text. Um, My first job in vocational ministry was uh, to be the intern for Caleb Clardy, which turned out to be less productive and more fun than every other job in vocational ministry I've had since then. Um, And your pastor has served as my personal mentor uh, for the last seven years that I've spent in New York. Um, I've gotten to come in and out of this congregation and have relationships with many of you, have been deeply encouraged by many of you, so I just wanted to very sincerely say thank you. Uh, You may not be aware of it, but this church played a large role in the planting of our church in Williamsburg, so thank you so much for the role that you played very directly or very indirectly in my life and in the life of our church in Williamsburg. It is a a sincere honor to be with you. Um, We're beginning a new teaching series today uh, that's going to carry us all throughout the summer. It's called Revive Us Again. The idea behind it is this. We want to make our way through the accounts of great spiritual awakening that took place in the scriptures. The revivals that were led by people like Moses and Nehemiah and Asa and John the Baptist and many others. And these revivals can serve for us as clear examples of what God can and even longs to do in our time and place. And so when you hear the word revival, I'm not entirely sure what comes to your mind. It's not a word that we often use anymore. You, you may immediately think of like large tents and traveling preachers. You may think of an underrated classic rock band. You may have skepticism. You may have excitement. I have no idea. And so I just, before we get into it, I just want to define for you what we mean when we talk about revival. The scholar Walter Kaiser says, A revival is a time when believers witness an extraordinary work of God enlivening, strengthening, and elevating the spiritual life and vitality already possessed by which life is now in a, I'm sorry but which life is now in a state of decline and is feeble, mediocre and dull in its outworkings. So some of you have been coming to this church for a very long time and for others of you this may be your very first Sunday showing up here but you should know this about us that we long to be a people of childlike faith and hope in God. 
We believe that God is every bit as alive today as he's ever been. And we believe that the scriptures are not a greatest hits record. They're not a compilation of spiritual superheroes. They are the normative response that a person has to the living God. And so, in other words, if, if we are encountering the same God that we read about in the scriptures, we should be living biblical lives. Our lives should be becoming unique versions of what we're reading. And so, the motivation of this church has always been the, pro- the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, which, incidentally, is a prayer for revival. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is a bold prayer for God's presence and power, and it's one that we are committed as a community to seeking. But we also live in New York City. And that means that you smell garbage all summer, every summer. And that means that you live a fast-paced work life. You, you spend your work days in a competitive environment, and you often feel like every week is a blur. That means that you face challenges of sustainability as you try to make a home here and move through life stages. And that means that you have those days where it just seems like the whole city is conspiring to work against you. And in the course of normal days like that, often biblical hope can get traded in for, I just want to make it through another week and be a part of a church community that meets my basic spiritual needs. And so to people like us, C.E. Autry defines revival as revival is a reanimating of those who already possess life. Edwin Orr says that it is times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And so just as a family of churches across the city, that's what we want to spend the summer seeking. We want to seek God for a reanimating of the spiritual life that we have, but that may grow dull in the normal days and weeks of life in a place like this. We want to seek God for refreshing that comes from his presence. And so that's the journey that we're beginning today, but I just want to be honest with you about the baggage that I carry into this journey this summer. And um, I've honestly gone back and forth in my head about whether to share this with you or not. Um, I just grabbed my journal out of my backpack and brought it up here with me, and and I've been going back and forth not because I fear vulnerability, um, but because I fear that the vulnerability that I'm about to share with you will be taken as uh, disingenuous or cheap and not as sincere. Um, But anyway, yesterday, um, I went on a walk yesterday evening, as is my pastoral tradition on Saturday nights. When you become a pastor, Saturday nights change dramatically. Um, And so uh, I went on a walk to pray and to think, and mainly, honestly, to look over the outline for this talk. Um, to try to remember what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it and all those sorts of things. And um, as I was walking, I just felt such a powerful encounter with the presence of God. I just stopped and spent the whole time in prayer. And um, I write my prayers down. That's just helpful for me in terms of actually processing what I mean before God. So I just want to read you my prayer from yesterday evening. Dear God, my passion has run dry. I've tried explaining it to myself as fatigue, but it's not. I'm not tired, but I'm not expectant. As much or more than anyone in the room tomorrow, I need to be revived, Lord. I've got more anticipation over the Sunday night of a holiday weekend than the Sunday morning. 
I'm more excited and hopeful about my social life on July 4th than my spiritual life on July 3rd. And if my hunger for you, Father, does not far exceed my hunger for a shorter work week or a day with less responsibility or a bit more indulgence, how can I possibly lead other people to revival? I came on this walk to look over my outline, but the material is fine. It's my heart, God. That's what needs work. Please fan the dull, burning embers of my belief back into flame again. Please, Lord, restore my belief in the innocent hope of former days. Please, Father, let me know boldness, faith, and courage, and not merely information. Wake me up, God. I don't know how to shake myself awake, but I know I'm sleeping. Wake me up, God. So that's uh, who I am, and that's my prayer. And that's what's on my heart. And so we're starting this new teaching series with Psalm 85, a prayer for revival. And if no one else needs it, I do. So thanks for letting me verbally process it in front of you for a few minutes this morning. Let's pray and just all try to honestly acknowledge whatever baggage we're bringing into this this morning. And then we'll finally actually begin with Psalm 85. Dear God, um, we've all got different stuff on our minds this morning. We all have different plans for this afternoon, and we all have different hopes, even as we're sitting here right now. But God, the the truest thing about all of us is our need for you. And um, so just on behalf of this community, I invite your presence into this room right now. I acknowledge that we have been inviting your presence. We've been crying out in praise to you. And we need you, God, whether we realize it or not. And so would you come and meet us each where we are? Would you speak to our hearts, God? Would you keep this from just being a a spiritual exercise we go through and make it an encounter with you, Father? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I think we best understand Psalm 85 by actually working backwards through it. So we're going to start at the end and we're going to move towards the beginning. Uh, We're going to begin at the destination, move back to the pathway, and then end today at the starting place of this psalm. So first, the destination. I want to show you a photo. This is a photo of uh, the Bedford Avenue L train stop, uh, which is the the biggest transportation hub in my neighborhood. And uh, what you're seeing in this photo happens every two to four minutes uh, at that train stop. Um, This is one subway station in one neighborhood in one borough of our city. And I just want to give you a second to to just look at the faces in this picture and to think about all of the individual stories. The people who have moved here in the last five years for an aspiration or just for a sense of belonging. The immigrants who sacrificed so much just to live a humble life in this city the generational families who have never known an environment outside of this one, and the homeless and poverty-stricken who seek refuge from the weather in places like this. And just think about all of the hopes and dreams and excitements and disappointments that are represented on the faces of these people. And then, listen to the words of prayer from the author of Psalm 85. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. 
Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. The psalmist is saying, when the kingdom of God is fully realized among us, the hungry are fed and the lonely find themselves in the warmth of community and the rejected are given their dignity back and the overworked find rest and the sick are nursed back to health and the abused actually find a new start and the addicted actually find rehabilitation. And there's something in our hearts that hears a prayer for something like that and says, yes, yes, yes. Honestly, that's what I signed up for when I said yes to Jesus and yes to community. That is the destination that we are all seeking when we talk about something like revival. So how do we get there? This is the pathway. Just skipping back uh, a little bit previously in the psalm. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Our iniquity, the wrath of God, his displeasure toward us, this all seemed so uplifting and positive just a moment ago. What on earth has happened? How can this possibly be the pathway to the destination that we were talking about just a moment ago? All throughout the scriptures, if you look in the Psalms, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospels, anywhere you search, you will find this, that revival always begins with repentance. Second Chronicles 7 says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wickedness, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So the the pathway that we're given to revival goes something like this. You humble yourself, you personally repent, and then, and only then, do we find ourselves in a revived community, one that is defined by the presence and the power of God. This is the pattern of the biblical church. The church is born in Acts chapter 2, and here's how it happens. It starts with humbled individuals. We're told that when the message of Jesus was proclaimed, people were cut to the heart and said, what should we do? And then it leads to repentance. Many that day repented, turning, and I know that's a Christian word, so if you have no idea what we're talking about when we say repentance, this is what it means, to change your mind and then to act on that change of your mind. So that day, we're told that thousands of people changed their mind about what they had put at the center of their lives and turned and went in the other direction with their action, and then and only then do we have a community that is historically known even to this day for generosity, healing, reconciliation, blessing, protection, and so on. This isn't just something that happened at the beginning of the church. It's a continual pattern that plays out through the remainder of the New Testament. Acts chapter 3 says, speaking to more new believers, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The Apostle John, who was there on the day of Pentecost, then writes, churches, or writes seven letters to seven churches, all in modern-day Turkey. They're all recorded in the book of Revelation. Five of the seven of those letters begin with the instruction, repent. This is the pattern of biblical spirituality, but it is not the pattern of modern-day spirituality. 
I think that most of us have said yes to the destination, and it's not a half-hearted yes. It's a wholehearted yes. We're willing to pay the cost. We're, we're willing to commit. Young people in previous generations started punk bands. Young people in our generation start 501c3s. And, and so we, we, are, we want the kingdom with all of our hearts. But when it comes to the pathway of repentance, our passion quickly wanes. Jesus came declaring a kingdom bigger than the effect of any individual human life, a kingdom that starts like a mustard seed and grows into something so big and includes so many people that none of us could even fathom it. But at the center of every kingdom is a king on a throne. And if his kingdom is bigger than any individual life, that means that there's a throne and you're not on it. We want the destination but I'm not sure that we want the pathway. We have said a wholehearted yes to the kingdom, but we may prefer it without the king. Let me just give you kind of a, a picture of this. I think a picture of modern day spirituality can be summed up in the life of Scott Harrison, who is the founder of an organization called Charity Water that I'm sure many of you have heard of. He spoke at Trinity Grace several years ago, and um, I recently listened to him on the podcast, The Ringer, which I incessantly listened to for sports information, and suddenly Scott Harrison was on it. So if you want to know all of his story, look it up on that podcast. Here's the two-minute version. His life can basically be boiled down to these two episodes. The first one goes like this. At age 18, uh, he rebelled against his upbringing and became a club promoter in New York City. And uh, he was actually very successful and so he took on in his personal life everything that goes on along with being a nightclub promoter. He, he took on habits of excessive drinking, casual sex, pornography, strip clubs, gambling, drug use, and so forth. And as he tells his story, he looks back as the defining moment of the first half of his life happened at age 28, 10 years into being a nightclub promoter when he was at a destination party somewhere in South America. So he had flown down a bunch of people from New York, hired servants, hired a series of DJs, and he's at this party 48 hours into the party. He's two days into a party, and he says he has this moment where the, for the first time in his life, he just wanted it to end. He says, I just wanted the music to stop because all of a sudden I was arrested with this reality that this isn't it. This isn't enough. This life isn't delivering on what I thought it would promise to me in the first place. And so he came back to America and he spent the next two years of his life doing nothing except emptying himself of everything that had corrupted it. He quit taking drugs and dealt with all the withdrawals. He stopped having casual sex. No more pornography, no more gambling, no more nightclubs whatsoever. And all of his friends assumed he was going through a phase. Scott stopped going out? Okay. But he began to ask himself the question, what would it be like if I actually built a life around serving others? I've lived my entire adult life serving myself. What if I turned that and went in the complete opposite direction? Part one of his story is a story about repentance. This is part two. After emptying his life of all of these things, he started filling it up with something else. And so he applies to spend a year working for a humanitarian organization. He filled out applications for every humanitarian organization he could find. They all rejected him. 
Understandably, his resume did not look like what they were looking for up to that point. And he finally found this one organization that said, okay, we'll take you on these conditions. You have to live in Liberia for the next year serving the poor, and you have to pay us $500 a month to volunteer for our organization. And he said, okay, I'll take that. So he moved to Liberia. He lived there for a month, served the poor. It completely changed his life. It gave him a whole new passion. And he founded Charity Water in 2006. Since then, they're in 24 countries. They've carried out over 20,000 water water projects. 6.3 million people now have access to clean drinking water that didn't before. In 10 years, they've cut the world water crisis in half. That's a story about kingdom. That's a story about heaven coming to earth, being played out through a unique life. Modern day spirituality, I think we straddle the two halves of this man's life. I don't think we live either one of them fully, and so we don't inherit the blessings of either one of them entirely. Repentance. I mean, we generally agree with this as an idea, but do we empty ourselves to the degree that he empties himself? Do we take seriously the things that have corrupted us to the degree that he takes them seriously? I mean, come on, man. Wasn't that a bit dramatic? Were those two years really necessary? Is God really that concerned about my social life? Well, I honestly am not entirely sure. But on the other side, are we actually inheriting the kingdom in that kind of way? I mean, can you honestly say my life is a unique version of that sort of thing that we're talking about? I I think instead we have lived part of the first half and part of the second, but we attempt to hold those things in tension without living either one of them Entirely, Many of us have said yes to the fruit of following Jesus without ever actually submitting our lives to him. And if we try to get the kingdom without the king, then we end up with neither. But if we start with the king and submit our lives to him, then the kingdom naturally follows because outward revival always begins with inward revival. Nelson Mandela, uh, after serving a 27-year prison sentence, stepped out of prison and said, the blessing of prison for me was the ability to go within and think and to create within myself peace, reconciliation, and harmony, the very things I wanted most for South Africa. And in the same way, every biblical revival, without exception, began in the heart of one person. We're about to spend a summer looking at each one. They all began within the heart of one person person who then became the embodiment of the work that God wanted to do in a larger community. Our collective dreams for this church will happen one way, if they start in your heart first. So that brings us to our starting place, the place the psalm begins, which is just simply to humble yourself. The starting place of revival is to humble yourself. When you humble yourself, there's three very important things that happen. First one is that your sin is exposed. When you humble yourself, your sin is exposed. In our society as a whole, the only sin really left that's agreed upon is calling something that someone else is doing sin. And so within the church, as thoughtful postmodern people who are trying to follow Jesus in an intellectual, pluralistic, global city... We are becoming increasingly uncomfortable with ideas like uh, sin and obedience. And so I think that we should be confronted. We should allow ourselves to be confronted with the words of Psalm 24, which we read as our call to worship this morning. 
Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Yeah, but isn't that when God used to be super uptight? I mean, didn't Jesus show up and kind of do away with all of that? Here's Jesus in Matthew 5. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do likewise will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And the problem is we think that this is a bad thing. We hear these words of Jesus and think, what a hard teaching. We think exposed sin is a consequence and not a reward. And so we think, well, if if I humble myself and it's going to expose my sin, then why on earth would I humble myself in the first place? And it's because we misunderstand that Jesus is talking about freeing you, not about controlling you. The exposing of sin has always been about restoring your freedom the freedom that you were designed to live in in the first place. The story that we have inherited through the scriptures begins with relational bliss that was perfect and eternal, and that is what was lost in the fall. That is what was lost when sin entered the world. And so ever since then, every action that God has taken in the world has been about getting you your freedom back, the relational bliss that you were meant to live within. And so even if you take the most simple example, something like the Ten Commandments, This is what they sound like if you understand that they're about freedom. You're going to be more free to love and to live in relational freedom with one another if you don't kill each other. Because that leads to fear and defensiveness. You're going to be more free to love and to be known and to live an unrestrained life if you don't sleep with one another's husbands and wives because that leads to broken hearts and pain. And when the Ten Commandments were given, the surrounding societies, they didn't function according to customs like this, but God gives them to people as a recommendation saying, if you frame your life underneath this authority, you will find greater freedom than how you're living right now. And Jesus comes along on the earth and says in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And Jesus isn't saying this to try to manipulate anyone into obedience. For Jesus, a relationship of love remaining in life within his kingdom is impossible to do if we're not actually doing what he says, ordering our lives according to his teaching. Is this building currently on fire? Okay, this is just what happens here. Cool. Um, I just didn't want to keep going and everyone be panicked that we were in an emergency. Okay. So sin separates us from God. Guys, we're just going to power through. Okay? I mean, that's the vibe I was getting. Was I misreading the situation? Okay, so sin separates us from God. What that means is the long-standing sin in your life, those parts of your life that you gave up on overcoming years ago and are now just managing, those things are driving a relational wedge between you and God. And so when we humble ourselves before him, those things come to the surface because God wants to set you free from them. 
And he is tenaciously fighting to remove every force that drives a relational wedge between you and him, but he doesn't force this on you. You have to want the freedom that he offers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Second thing that happens when you humble yourself is that your hope is redirected. These are the words of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. This past week on Wednesday morning, I was sitting at the end of a pier in my neighborhood. And I was spending time in solitude. I wasn't performing. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't reading anything. I wasn't trying to be productive. I was just trying to be quiet and listen to God. And I could hear these sounds of construction going on behind me. And I remember just thinking about all the work that went into me hearing those sounds. Like the dreams of an investor and the painstaking drawings of an architect and the day in and day out labor of a team of construction workers. And I'm looking in front of me at the Williamsburg Bridge and I'm seeing all these cars just crawling across it into Manhattan. Like the trucks of beverage distributors and the black cars of investment bankers and everything in between all going to do their thing that day. And it just hit me that one of the many stories that is true across our city is that we are attempting to fill ourselves to satisfaction on the bread of anxious toil. This is one of the stories of New York City. It's the story of my life most of the time, and I would imagine that it's the story of many of your lives as you sit here this morning. Early mornings and late nights... (laughs) Long hours and little rest, an anxious, restless mind, even when we're trying to turn it off, and a sense of ambition that seems never to be satisfied. And according to the psalmist, if God isn't the source, then this is all in vain. It's all anxious toil. And maybe what's even more timely and sobering is that many of us right now are making plans to sustain that sort of life because it's summer. So we're planning vacations and weekends away because we live under the illusion that if I just get a couple days off email, if I get a couple days away from responsibility, if I get a couple days of extra indulgence, then I can be powered up and ready for another year filled with life of anxious toil. Jesus tells this parable about a wedding banquet. We invite a bunch of people to a feast and they all say no. And here's the reasons. One has a farm that he's got to take care of. The other has a business that he has to tend to, and one has already committed to a different event. And I've always been struck by this parable because those are such legit excuses. They're not evil on the surface. They're just busy. They've just got more hope already placed in something else. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. The psalmist says, attempting to satisfy yourself on any other source is the bread of anxious toil. When we humble ourselves, our hope gets redirected from ourself to God. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. But what happens when we let God be God, when we actually place the weight of our hope and trust on him? For he gives to his beloved sleep. 
in the midst of a fast-paced New York City life, what does God want for you? He just wants you to rest the weight of your hope on his shoulders, not your own, so that he can give you rest. How good does that sound? I think one of the biggest challenges after you believe is to actually keep your hope planted firmly on God and not take it back for yourself. This psalm was the thematic verse of my life during the year leading up to the planting of our church in Williamsburg. And so I I just felt like God spoke to me so clearly through it so that during that year, the year that I was probably most susceptible to trusting myself too much, to trying too hard, to trying to force something I wanted to see to happen without actually trusting God with it, I would read this again and again multiple times every week. And I actually lived with the conviction that if God's going to do anything worthwhile here, he actually wants to do it in the midst of my rest, not in the midst of my effort and toil. And it was an amazing year. It far exceeded my expectations. And then this past week, I accidentally stumbled across this psalm, and I realized the 18 or so months ever since I've spent taking all of that hope back and tightening my grip on it. That place in my heart hasn't been constant. And God has graciously continued to work through it, but I've spent a lot more days since then in anxious toil. And so this week when I came across this psalm, I had this realization that the number one thing that has brought me joy in the year 2016 is my friendship with this guy named Mike. Mike showed up at our church on the first Sunday of 2016. He was the first one there. He did not know that you always arrive 10 to 15 minutes late to church yet. It was his first time. So he showed up and uh, he was sitting by himself. I went up and talked to him. I'm like, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, oh, good. It's my first time here. I came because I, I made a New Year's resolution to be more spiritual. So here I am. I was like, here you are. Hope it works. And, and he just kept coming back. And I got to know him, and we shared a few coffees, and our families got together for dinner, and he became spiritually intrigued. He came along our Alpha course. And, and just a month or so ago, he prayed to receive Christ. It's absolutely unbelievable to get to walk this guy's journey with him. It was so beautiful. Since then, he started reading John's gospel, and I get these texts from him all the time with questions and stuff. This is he and I uh, at a Mets game with poor lighting. We asked the guy behind us to take a photo, and um, we're sitting. He is a diehard Mets fan, has been his entire life, and we're sitting at this game, which he paid for the tickets to, and has done everything to make happen. We're sitting there, and all he wanted to talk about was the Gospel of John. He was like, hey, man, do you know about Lazarus? And I was like, yeah, I know about Lazarus. And he was like, I just read that this morning. That's insane. That seems pretty important. Jesus raised someone from the dead before. He was raised from the dead. You should talk about that at church sometime. And I was like, that's a good point. I'll pencil that in. We'll, we'll work that in sometime soon. And and earlier this week, I got a text from him that said, I, I just finished John. I started James. I'm absolutely loving this. This morning, I received an email from him that said, I finished James. What should I read next? And I've just gotten so much joy out of witnessing the work of God in this guy's life. And so I'm sitting there reading Psalm 127. All this is flashing through my head. And I heard the voice of God speak to me so clearly and say, where were you when I started all of that? What were you doing? And I just realized I was resting. 
New Year's Day 2016, I was at my parents' house in Charleston, South Carolina, eating a bunch of snacks and binge-watching Making a Murderer. I was not sending emails, trying to make something happen, furiously working to draw people into the church. I was resting. I was doing nothing productive. And then I just heard God say, you can still trust in me. I'm still good. I still know how to build the house. Watchman Nee, who is a Chinese theologian, uh, wrote a book called Sit, Walk, Stand, where he explains it like this. He gives this image. He says, if you're in the Coast Guard and you come across someone who's drowning, but they're fighting for their life, you can't jump in and try to save them because that person, in the fury of trying to save their own life, will often accidentally harm you, drowning both of you. And so instead, Coast Guard training goes like this. If you come across someone drowning but still fighting for their life, you have two options. You can, one, knock the person unconscious and then drag them to shore. Or, less violently, you can just wait until they tired themselves out to utter exhaustion and then rescue them. But good training says, never try to save someone who's still trying to save themselves. That's a powerful image. Because how many of us are fighting with everything we've got for our own lives right now? How many of us are fighting to save ourselves? One way to stop fighting is to redirect our hope from self to God. So here's the last thing that happens when you humble yourself. Your future is guaranteed. I just want to read you this promise from God in Isaiah 57, 15. And there's a word in there. Some translations translate it lowly. Others translate it humble. I'm going to read humble because I think it serves our purposes more clearly and directly here this morning. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and humble in heart to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where does God send his refreshing presence? It's not only to the high and holy place, it's to the humble, it's to the contrite, it's to those who have stopped fighting. What an extraordinary promise. Trinity Grace Church, how do you get to see everything that you most want to see God do all around you? You humble yourself. You humble yourself before the King. That is the starting place. Outward revival always starts with inward revival. Everything we most long to see God do in our world starts within our own humble and contrite hearts. Let me pray for you. Dear Father, um, we humble ourselves before you now. And uh, I just acknowledge, God, that no one in this room needs any words that I have. They need words from you, God. And so I pray, Lord, that right now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would be speaking to individual hearts, God. I pray that you would expose sin in our lives that's separating us from you. I pray, God, that you would redirect our hope away from ourselves and towards you. I pray, God, that you would help us to rest the full weight of our identity on this promise that you meet us in our humility. 
God, as a church and as individuals, would you humble us now? I'm going to give you just a moment just to reflect on what God may be speaking to you this morning. To confess before God any sin that is being exposed in your life. To acknowledge and admit the place that you've been placing your hope other than him. And now in the midst of whatever God is speaking to you, would you receive this promise? I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. Amen. The ultimate fulfillment of these words is the person of Jesus who humbled himself more entirely than we can possibly fathom taking on human flesh, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. We follow a humble king. And how does he ask us to follow him? Just by receiving. By receiving the life that he has lived on our behalf, by receiving the rest that he offers in the midst of our toil. And so... As we prepare our hearts to come to the communion table this morning, I want to remind you that this is a receiving of the humble life that God has lived on your behalf. So there's going to be some instructions on the screen of exactly how to make your way forward logistically this morning. And we're going to have a team of leaders from this community available at the front of the room to pray. If if there's anything that God is speaking to you, one way to mark that in your life is to actually just share it with someone else. Invite someone else into the way that God is working on your heart. We're a community of people who bear burdens together. So if God is speaking to you, I just want to invite you as one way to respond to pray with someone. Will you stand with me now? And just as you feel, um, as you feel your heart is prepared, I just want to invite you to come forward this morning to receive with humility the life lived on your behalf by our humble King.